welcome to Conversations About Life. Well, thanks, Robert. It's good to be here with you. So I'm with Robert Trescalard, who is an author, author of some... Um, a trilogy um, about Merlin. I've started in on the first one, um, Merlin and the Blade, I think it is. Merlin's Blade. Merlin's yes. Blade. Yes. Okay. And then besides that, I was just kind of checking you out on Facebook, and um, you make uh, swords sometimes. And uh, I think your day job, you just said, was IT. Is that yes. still what it is? Yep. Okay. Yep. I do software development. Okay. So. Right. And uh, what kind of software do you work on? <laughs> um, I, I mainly do uh, websites, um, do both back-end development as well as the front-end. Um, I'm, I'm a graphic artist as well, okay. so um, I, that lends my skills toward the front-end, but you know, a lot of the needs are, are doing things in the web servers. So Okay. Well, what else would you, would you say about yourself as far as just who Robert is um how would you describe yourself um that's that's a very good question um i'll just say right now that we're in pacific missouri and this is known as as uh as as a train town so we can hear the trains in the background here. yeah ambience yes um so um who am i i, I guess i'm i'm known for being an author um, on the internet, that's kind of my, my public persona, but I'm a, um, I guess you could say a graduated homeschool dad, um, software developer, um, artist, woodworker, um, metalsmith, um, just kind of dabble in all sorts of things. Mm-hmm. So I've been married for going on um, 32 years. Mm-hmm. Uh, to my wife Robin, so we're Robert and Robin, and um, I'm a grandfather. I I have one grandson, um, three children. Um, oldest is um, just turning thirty this year, and uh, my youngest is twenty, and graduating from uh, nursing school in uh, Belmont um, University in Nashville. Okay, and. And then the Merlin trilogy is that your first uh, books? Yes. Okay. Yeah, I have uh, um, three published, um, and I'm working on the fourth. It's been a very slow process, um, and that is called Arthur's Blade. So there's Merlin's Blade, Merlin's Shadow, Merlin's Nightmare, and that is the the three of the of the Merlin spiral. And then um, the next set of three will be Arthur's Blade. Pendragon's Blood and Morgana's Hour of the Pendragon Spiral. So six books total are planned. Okay. Um, almost finished with the fourth. So. Okay. And then, do you you seem to have like a um, a liking to like uh, medieval type of of things, um, or maybe are you more of um, like a, a writer, and it just happens to be that you're into this medieval thing, or is do you just have a real love for medieval type of things and that drew you into these other things? Yeah, I, I've always had a, a love of history. And um, in particular, I've been drawn toward the, you know, the Celtic aspects of, of history, um, which gets into ancient um, 
Britain, Ireland, and Scotland. Um, and then that also, you know, you know, leads toward the Middle Ages. Um, and I think writing was something I, I didn't expect that I would ever do. Hmm. Um, I didn't learn grammar very well in school. And um, somehow um, found myself in an honors English program my senior year of high school. I don't know quite how that happened. Um, <laughs> and But probably the first clue that I had um, that I had talent in writing was I was in, I think, seventh grade. And I, I turned in a, just like a little writing assignment to my English teacher and she, she wrote back on the paper. She said, um, send me a copy of your first book. Oh, yeah. <laughs> wow. And um, that was, you know, a total shock to me. And, um, and then I think in ninth grade, I, I was in a class where I wrote some poetry. And the teacher accused me of plagiarizing, of that I didn't write it myself. And I had, like, written it over, like, 10 minutes over breakfast or something that morning, some, some haikus or something. And um, so, but, you know, that skill kind of kind of lay dormant um, because I, I really focused on my, my father was an artist he was a, um, a portrait painter and landscape painter and um, my mom did drawing and stained glass and, and things and so I, I was always drawing growing up and I, I drew comic books for years and you know superhero type comic books um, and I never didn't I didn't think of myself as a writer but even but I, I created probably like almost 16 comic books over that over that time span of growing up and the whole time I was plotting I was making plots and stories and didn't really think of it as writing um, I was I thought of it as drawing you know um, <laughs> and I also um, loved fantasy stories I, I read um, Tolkien in junior high and, and read the Sil- I was given the Silmarillion read the Silmarillion and and um, also read the Chronicles of Narnia um, and, and tons of other fantasy that was given to me. And, and then I became a Christian um, in ninth grade and, you know, got into college, got busy, stopped, stopped reading, didn't have time for, for reading, and um, got married. And my wife and I were perusing a, a bookstore, and I ran across a Stephen Lawhead novel, um, which was called, it was the, the Song of Albion trilogy, um, the Paradise War. And, you know, it was completely fascinating to me. And, and I read that, and, it, and that, and along with, Frank, say, Frank Peretti's novels, really opened my eyes to the, the power of fiction um, and the power of, you know, the ability to take stories and... and, and redeem them in a sense, you know, to take the secular fantasy of my youth um, and to redeem those, and then also rediscovering Tolkien and, and um, the Chronicles of Narnia, um, rediscovering those from a Christian standpoint, that, that those were Christian authors and, and bringing new understanding to those. And so I, I began to... I began to... Um, um, just gain a a desire to tell stories myself, um, and I guess that was kind of the beginning of me beginning to think of myself of the possibility of writing. So, when you say like 
to redeem fantasy. Like, what do you mean by that? Well, Tolkien began um, modern fantasy by writing The Lord of the Rings in many ways. And obviously, you know, it began a long time before that with George MacDonald and, and other authors. But, um, you know, he began what would be termed modern fantasy um, and started off a whole genre that that exploded. And But most of it was secular. Most of it, you know, went off um, and... You know, most of the authors were not writing from a Christian or as from Tolkien's, you know, a Catholic perspective. And so, you know, religion was involved in a lot of the writings, but, um, you know, there was, Christ was missing, God was missing. Um, you know, it became very godless in many ways. And so, you know, the, the King Arthur tales are an example of that. Um, most people think of the, the King Arthur tales, they think of Merlin as some wizard or some druid. And if you read the vast majority of, of, of novels about King Arthur or Merlin, um, you, know, the, you know, they take a very secular, paganistic, druid type of, type of approach. But if you actually talk to the scholars and you study the legends based upon the era that they would have lived, um, if King Arthur had been alive, we don't know for sure. But he would have been a Christian, and Merlin would have been a Christian as well. Um, and but you don't find that, you know, in the novels, you know. Um, and and Lawhead took a Christian approach to the King Arthur series, and and um, that was the second books of his that I read. Um, his um, um, Pendragon Cycle novels. He wrote five novels, um, and so. I had always loved King Arthur since I was in high school. I think I saw the movie Excalibur, um, and that fit right in with all my love of fantasy and everything. And I hadn't really thought about writing my own, you know, novels about King Arthur. It's been done so many times. Why would I? Why would I attempt something like that? Um, but what happened was, my son, when he was nine years old, wanted to learn blacksmithing. He wanted to, you know, we had been to Silver Dollar City, we'd seen the blacksmiths and, you know, banging, you know, you know what, what young boy, what, what young um, child would not love, um, you know, banging metal and making sparks and heat and, you know, you know, how exciting is that? And, and he wanted to learn to make knives, to make swords, you know, he was nine, he was nine years old. And so I, I ordered an anvil, mail order, um, had it shipped to our house. It came in like a like a wooden crate, hmm. and uh, never mail order an anvil. The shipping charges <laughs> <Yeah>. are immense. <laughs> Very heavy mm-hmm. objects. Um, and I built a a forge for him out of uh, like a like a large wooden box lined with clay, and, um, and 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 built like a bathroom fan with a potentiometer to control the the speed. And and so, you know, we we started learning blacksmithing, and. My sister found out about that. I was very fascinated, and she, and she told us that um, that we were descended from a a Cornish blacksmith. And Cornish means is from Cornwall, England. Um, most people haven't heard of Cornwall. Um, some have, but it's it's a very small. It's considered a county, but it's a small piece of land that juts out into the ocean in the very southwest corner of England. 
and it is a former um, I shouldn't say former but it is um, of Celtic origin the people that, that lived there um, but it is over time became the most anglicized of, of the different of the remaining Celtic areas um, they lost their language the Cornish language was lost um, where Wales to the north which is a sister language has been kept alive um, Scotland you know you know Gaelic in, in, or Gaelic in Scotland has been kept alive um, but, but Cornwall went through a revival where they brought their language back um, and, and, and they, you know, they resurrected it from the dead basically there were no native speakers but they did their best to you know they're teaching it in schools and they're bringing it back anyway so my, my mother's family comes from Cornwall England I found out and my mother's maiden name in, in Cornish means means the smith or the blacksmith Mm-hmm. And so somewhere back in time, we don't know who, somebody was a, a Cornish blacksmith. And so um, what I did was I, I kind of, you know, as I um, write in my bio, I welded the, the, you know, this ancient Cornish blacksmith with the legends of King Arthur, which the land of Cornwall is very much associated with King Arthur. There's, you know, there's... Almost everyone claims King Arthur. The English claimed him, which made no sense because he was actually fighting against the, the, the Anglo, ancient Anglo-Saxons. Um, the Scottish claim him. The Welsh claim him. The Cornish claim him. So we don't really know where he was. He was probably from all over. He, he was, isn't that big of an island, really. But, um, but there's definitely a connection with, um, with Cornwall, with King Arthur. And so I took my blacksmith knowledge um, and basically in my novels made Merlin the son of a blacksmith and so his his father throughout the first novel is forging Excalibur and you don't know that at the time it hasn't received that name um, but but that kind of you know happens and so I was able to bring in some of that knowledge and and I'm kind of an amateur historian as well and I spent years researching the history and 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 the the customs and the people and the languages and that that really helped help my books, my novels a lot. It also helped me that my daughter um, began writing her own novel at the same time I did, and she happened to know. Um, you know, we we homeschooled our kids and let our kids kind of go off in their own direction, and she basically learned, um, you know, Scottish Gaelic, um, learned a smattering of Welsh, she learned Old English. She, she, you know, she could read Manx, um, all these things, and and so she was able to add add depth to my novels as well. Um, hmm. So, um, you know, you're mentioning C.S. Lewis. Have you read his book on um, different genres of uh, literature? I forgot what the title is, but he writes about this type of genre of literature and this type and how to handle it. I forget and so forth. I, I can't remember the title okay. either. So, so um, he talks about myths, and um, so do you. Do you have any thoughts about like a myth? Like, have you thought about how you would define myth? The, it's an interesting question because myth was, you know, at the at the heart of um, of C.S. Lewis turning to Christ. And one of the reasons he rejected Christianity was because he saw it as a myth. 
and I know in in conversations with Tolkien, they discussed the fact that Christianity was the one true myth. It was it was the myth that that was true, that came true, and that all the other myths were pointing to. That these ancient peoples, that that God was planting in, within them. That God was planting within them the um, a, a knowledge that would that would lead them to Him once they heard the true story. And the interesting thing about that hmm. is, is in some ways, it mirrors my own life. I grew up in a in a non-Christian family. Um, you know, if if you look at my extended family, we have probably seven religions within a very short span of people. And my father was Buddhist. Um, my mom kind of mixed Christianity with New Age beliefs. And when I was born, she had a she you know she had some dream that I always had to wear a cross. Um, you know, it, it was more superstition, but I had to wear a cross. So I, I like as a kid, I would lose a cross in the chain. So she pinned it to my shirt. So hmm. I, I I grew up not going to church, but I always had a cross on me somewhere. And so when I was, you know, when I'd be scared at night or something would happen, I, I would I would hold I would hold that cross. Um, my parents were divorced when I was young, first grade, and so I, my mom was off, either either working or going to school, and I was alone a lot. And so sometimes I'd even fall asleep at night in the dark house, you know, with maybe my brother downstairs and me upstairs alone. And if I was scared, I would hold on to that cross, and so. That prepared me so that when, in ninth grade, when a man shared the gospel with me, I had, I had been trusting in the cross without having any knowledge of it, without understanding the truths of it. And so, I, and so God had prepared my heart to receive the gospel and to, and to put my trust properly and fully in him. Um, and I think myth acts acted that way in many ways, that there were, were truths mixed into the myth. And so when the gospel spread throughout, you know, Northern Europe, you know, in particular, um, the people were prepared. Um, the soil was rich. You know, they, they believed in God. It wasn't like atheism. Um, and so things made sense. Mm-hmm. And it was, it was turning from one myth, um, something that wasn't true, to something that to them would appear the same but was true so so what did the cross mean to you before you knew the gospel i didn't know much i mean Mm -hmm. i knew i I would see like crucifixes at a friend's house with jesus hanging on the cross um Mm -hmm. i knew it was connected with jesus um you know there were vestiges of Christianity in my family. I would go downstairs and you know at Christmas time and find this nativity set that nobody brought out that was sitting on a shelf, dusty, and ask what is this? Hmm. And my my older brother would try to explain to me what it was. And I think I went to church maybe twice. And mm-hmm. all I remember is spinning the quarter on the Sunday school table and don't remember anything else. Mm-hmm. So I honestly knew very little except maybe what just other other secular kids who didn't go to church would tell me or what we'd talk about. Um, you know, but, I, but I knew I trusted in it. I knew mm-hmm. that was where I went when I was scared. When, when, um, and 
it was you know it was a a unique way to come to Christ. <laughs> um, and and before someone shared the gospel with me, I had also I you know lived growing up without a father. Um, you know, in in the home, um, I I went off and got into um, destructive habits. Say, you know, I get into drugs and drinking and ju- juvenile delinquency. Um, you know, was arrested on was occasion this before you were nine. Yes. Okay. Uh, before I was in ninth grade. Okay. In, in junior ninth high, grade, I think. Yeah. Right. And so, um, so, but God began to even work even in those situations where I I stopped. You know, I got off drugs. I stopped drinking, trying to trying to turn things around, um, but not really understanding why. And I know I would have gone back to it. Um, and and so, I joined I, I joined a wrestling program because I, I wasn't able to be in sports because of a surgery when I was young, and I was finally able to be in sports. So I joined wrestling. A friend, in, you know, influenced me. And little did I know that that the coach was a Christian. The the coach of the high school wrestling team was also a Christian. And. Um, and and the other interesting thing about that is I can also draw a connection directly to C.S. Lewis's influence in influence becoming I became a Christian through C.S. Lewis's writing Chronicles of Narnia but in about the most indirect way you can imagine when I was in 6th grade not knowing anything about Christ or Christianity or very little um, a director who happened to be named Mr. Lewis Put on the play the the um, Lion Witch in the Wardrobe in my in my elementary school, and I didn't even know I wouldn't even have known about it. But my best friend at the time, who who was did grow up in a Christian home, he wanted to be in the play because the girl he liked was in the play, so he he got me in the play. So I ended up playing Fenris Ulf, um, the you know you know the wolf who served the White Witch in mm-hmm. in, in sixth grade. Well. Because of because of that play, I got into drama, and then I met other friends, and then because of those friends, I met another friend who was also who was in wrestling, and that original friend was also in wrestling. So I ended up being getting in wrestling in ninth grade in, as an indirect result of this play, and in wrestling, um, Campus Crusades High School Ministry brought in. Um, some college level at, you know wrestlers and they threw us around and showed us moves but they sat us down and explained that it wasn't wrestling wasn't the most important thing to them that Jesus Christ was and they passed out comment cards and if we wanted to meet with this staff member um, you know we could just check a box and I did that and I met at a Hardy's and he shared the gospel with me and it just it it was like I was just waiting you know to hear to hear the truth and hmm. and God had God had prepared my heart. Mm-hmm. For that, so yeah, so so yeah, a very indirect route from from uh, the line the witch in the wardrobe, and, and my friend actually explained to me at the time that Aslan was was a um, was an allegory for Christ. I didn't understand what that meant at all at the time, but I knew that Aslan died on this stone table, and you know it, it didn't didn't make sense to me until later. But yeah, well, C.S. Lewis, and I might I might not be explaining this real well, but he. He talks about myth not so much like, you know, as it, when defining myth like a true story or a false story, but more of a story. But what makes a myth a myth is that it, um, when you're reading it, you feel like you're, you're not going to be the same person when you're done. Like it, um, somehow it's affecting you in a deep way. And um, he said it's not in the, um, 
the details of the story that you can take the the storyline down to like just a bare few sentences and that storyline just hits you deep somehow and he uses an example of um some um myth about uh i don't know if i remember it but um someone's wife or something gets taken down into the underworld and um and her husband or it could be a father daughter i'm not for sure but you know he's able to go get her and bring her out but he he can't turn back and look at her until he's up you know that's like part of the agreement and he gets almost up you know but right before he does he turns back and look and then it's gone you know he lost her forever and um and i'm not telling that little sketch very well but um somehow um you know it just re- you know a myth just resonates with a person um it it's not it, it doesn't and it doesn't rest on its flowery language or something like that he also gave an example of someone who and i i picked up this author's um work and um he wrote a lot of stories about hunts in Africa and stuff like that. And I can't think of his name. But um, they're looking for Solomon's gold and stuff like this. And, you know, it, it, he compared that to another author who author who all, all, uh, wrote, um, you know, adventure tales too. But he said the one, the, the writing is much better, but the other one has that mythical quality to it. So anyway, it's been interesting to me just to kind of consider... You know what is what resonates with a person. You know when they read certain things, where it just seems like it's hitting something really deep. Yeah, and that's one of my goals was just to. You know, I, I mentioned redeeming. Um, yeah. You know, fantasy, and and one of my goals was to was was to attempt to redeem the King Arthur legends. Um, to, to redeem them for Christ, to bring them back to, you know, we have the Holy Grail. We have, um, you know, there's there's legends of, of Arthur painting a cross on his shield. You know, there's there's these things that are that are built into the King Arthur legends, and so it's it's a very natural way to to bring in um, truth without without forcing it in a sense, and. Um, So that was, you know, one of my goals. Uh, but I had to be careful to not, be, because Lawhead was one of my, one of my, um, I was a fan of his. Mm-hmm. I had to be careful to not write my novels like his to go in a different direction. He, you know, he very closely followed Sir Thomas Mallory's um, outline, and I've kind of blown that all up, and I've, I've, you know, pretty much writing my own, and I'm, I'm incorporating elements of about everything and anyone who knows the King Arthur legend in detail you know, will be able to you know you know see what I'm doing um, but I, wa- I wanted to be careful not to not to copy him in any way and I was actually able to spend the better part of a week with with Stephen Lawhead at a writing conference which is very rare because he lives in Oxford England mm-hmm. doesn't come to the US that often when he does come he, he doesn't spend he doesn't go to places where you can where you can see him for very long you might meet him at a coffee shop somewhere with with a number of others of his fans or something 
but but to actually spend the better part of a week with him to get him to read some of my work get his advice to you know to go to meals with him and and you know sit with him and and I also got to meet his son Ross who was there as well and his wife um and you know you know that that was a great privilege and and so um his advice was was very helpful and and I've also just been to a lot of other lots of other writing conferences um just learning from all sorts of authors I I never knew if I would get published um I I just felt like I I it's kind of a midlife crisis in, kind of, in some ways. I just felt like I wanted to pass something on of, of that would last to my children and grandchildren. Hmm. And as far as I knew, if I just printed up enough copies for them, I'd be happy. Mm-hmm. And never didn't know that I would end up getting published. And it was a very long road. Began writing in 2006. Finished my first novel in 2008. Thought that I was done. Ended up you know, having 14 other, 14 rewrites of the first novel. And, but I ended up getting picked up by Zonervan, which at the time was, had just merged with Thomas Nelson, which became HarperCollins Christian Publishing. Zonervan had been owned by HarperCollins. And then now I, and then they, right as my first book came out, they started a new imprint called Blink Young Adult Books. So mine was kind of the the first novel out, out of the gate for this new imprint. And then since then, they've started a new division called Harper Focus. I think Blink is now part of Harper Focus. So I'm, I'm kind of in there. So I went from thinking I would just be publishing, the, printing these books up for my kids to being published by a subsidiary of HarperCollins. And they were available in every English-speaking country in the world, in Australia, South Africa, Europe. Uh, so that was, you know, not that I've sold many books in any of those places, but it was it was quite a surprise to have that happen so yeah so what do you like to read yourself now nowadays i read um oh i have a lot of books going all at once i read other you know um books from other fantasy authors that i'm friends with who ask me to to review or or books i'm interested in i'm i'm currently reading a book by andrew peterson called adorning the dark okay hmm. and and Andrew is—it's very refreshing to read. He's—he's a—he's kind of a middle-grade young adult fantasy author and musician, and he has started a um, website called RabbitRoom.com. I don't know if you've heard of the Rabbit Room. Um, I've actually got a bag here from the Rabbit Room. Their logo is a, a rabbit smoking a pipe, in you know, in the spirit of of Tolkien and Lewis. Yeah. And 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 uh, they began the rabbit room after after Andrew visited Oxford England and went to the Eagle and Child pub where the Inklings would meet Tolkien and Lewis and um, all the others and the specific room they met in a little sign said the rabbit room so he came back and started this website and began collaborating and so my wife and I go to their Hutchmood conference every year and hmm. um, have just been in, you know enjoyed being part of that community and then there's another community the Realm Makers community that we're part of as well so do you ever think about um, arc, archetypes? Like, um, I listen to Jordan Peterson sometimes, and he talks about Pinocchio. And I don't. Do you listen to Jordan Peterson at all? I do. Yes. Okay. Yes. And um, archetypes, and um, and then he mentions Joseph Campbell, who must have really, you know, gotten into archetypes. The hero's to, journey. Right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, um, do you think about that when you're? reading or when you're writing or do you think there's something to it that um as a community 
some things just re- uh, you know resonate with us because it's got that archetypal typical quality that we just all recognize somehow from the common experience of being humans or I won't say that I that I consciously think about it but I think as I'm constructing my stories I think all of the all of those archetypes of all the stories I've ever read kind of imbue and and enter in like right now in Arthur's Blade um it's I had to ask myself the question, what is this trilogy? What is, it, what is its heart? And if so, I want to begin the novel that way. And I want to end it that way. And I also want to end the whole series, begin and end the whole series that way and create these arcs. And so, and it, it, it came down to that it was a love story between Arthur and Guinevere. And so I had to begin it that way and end it that way. And... The story is ultimately Arthur saving her, um, and that is an archetype, and an archetype which 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 we find in Scripture as well as as Christ coming down to earth to redeem his bride, and so um, that's just an example of how you know it, it isn't like I thought to myself, oh, I want to make a story of Christ coming down to redeem his bride, but you know it. These things bubble up. These truths bubble up, in, you know, to the surface, and and you know, and they're they're there under the surface as well, um, waiting to be discovered by readers. And do you think there's a way that we can discern truth um, through through that somehow, like rather than our kind of modern way of um, looking at for historical facts and stuff, like. For example, the Christian story, is there um, a way to, um, you know, to discern, you know, that or maybe um, just maybe moral um, things that we don't know why we should do this, but we just feel we should, like if there's um, something, um, you know, a a different way of of just finding our way through the world besides just kind of more of our modern is. Uh, modern, um, you know, facts and figures type of way, you know. I think it's very important, actually. And, you know, when we raised our children, we we fed them with good stories, mm-hmm. that, that that was as much of their of their diet as anything. And, and I think that, that that can inform a moral conscience, like, like you're saying, but it can also just give a person courage. And that was one of the goals also in my novels because some people haven't liked my novels because when they read them, they somehow want Merlin or Arthur to be superheroes. They want them to, you know, they want Merlin to have magic. And my Merlin doesn't have any magic. Hmm. He's half blind. He is weak. He is, you know, he might be physically strong because he's the son of a blacksmith and he's always helping out in the blacksmith shop, but, but he's... He's weak because he can't see anything very well. And so I'm writing from the perspective of someone with a disability. And I want, you know, also from legend, he, you know, you know, when you go to the Welsh tales, he's not a, he's not a, a wizard like Gandalf. He's more of a prophet. And he, you know, he has weaknesses. Um, 
And so what I wanted to do was to write a very human Merlin, someone who struggles. Um, he struggles with his, his disability in the first novel. He struggles with doubt, doubting God in the second novel, where, where you know, how can God be good when, when all these bad things are happening? And um, in the third novel, he's struggling with fear. Um, some people didn't like that. They wanted, you know, they wanted some superhero sort of a character. And I, you know, I, I have him struggle with, with sanity sometimes too in some of the things he's dealing with. Hmm. And I wanted, I wanted him to be human. I wanted him to be someone who struggled so that, re- so that a reader can take heart from that, can, can, can know that no matter what they're going through, whatever darkness they're going through, there's a way through it, and there's a way to, and that God is faithful, even, you know, even, even when everything seems to be falling apart. Mm-hmm. You know, in, in the second novel, Merlin is made a slave and taken up to Scotland. Um, and in the midst of that, that horror of what he, what he sees there and what he goes through, um, that, that he can see God's faithfulness even through that. What makes a um, a young adult novel young adult rather than you know some things are classified young adult some <laughs> things are are not? Yeah, that's a funny question. Um, and I hedged my bets when I wrote the novel because some publishers would only publish young adult fantasy, and some publishers only would not publish any young adult. They would only publish adult novels, mm-hmm. and so adult fantasy. So I made Merlin. And so what tends to, what ends up being the determining factor is actually the age of the main character. Okay. Is I see. is how they, you know, is is how the industry works. And so I made Merlin 18. Okay. He's like right on the edge so that I could I could send the novels to a a, a publisher who only who didn't do any young adult and I could, you know, say this is adult fantasy and I'd send it to ones that just did young adult fantasy. I could say this is young adult fantasy and I kind of mm. wrote it for everyone as much as I could yeah. and ended up being published young adult. So Okay. Is Merlin a historical person, you think? King Arthur and Merlin and so forth? Well, that's a good question. Um, when you look at at the oldest texts, there is um, a mention that there was a man called the, the Duke of Battles, the Dux Balorum, who drove back the Anglo-Saxons when they invaded um, Britain. And when you look for evidence for whether this, whether this, actually, this event actually happened, that the Anglo-Saxons were driven back, you go to the Anglo-Saxon Chronicles. You go and look at the, the writings of the people that, that would have been fighting against Arthur, say. And when you read the Anglo-Saxon Chronicles, you read, and we conquered this, we conquered that, we did this, we did that, and then suddenly there's like 200 silent years where they didn't didn't do anything. It's mm-hmm. kind of like they just kind of like go silent, mm-hmm. and um, and it, and it's very telling that that they must have had a major loss. Mm-hmm. They were pushed back, and so legend tells us that the name of this per, of of this Duke of Battles was Arthur. We don't know that for sure. Um, another interesting interesting. Um, ancient text that that refers to Arthur is um, it's called Egadothan and it and it's found in 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 northern northern England or, or southern Scotland say and this in this text it doesn't 
isn't specifically about Arthur at all, but it's dealing with with the battles between the kings of the north and their and their fighting against Anglo-Saxons as well. And in just a little footnote, at one point goes it, it's mentioning some some warrior, and it goes, but he was no Arthur. Hmm. Just kind of a little side note, and mm-hmm. it did it in such a way that the implication is that everyone in the area understood who Arthur was. Mm-hmm. They all knew who Arthur was, and in order to write something like that. Um, so I believe that King Arthur was probably real. Um, we don't have any archaeological evidence of it. And, mm-hmm. and, 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 and some ancient texts that, that could have mentioned him don't mention him by name. So, you know, scholars are divided on that. Mm-hmm. So. so when it comes to the Christian story, there's a lot more... Um, you know, material for, for us to see that it's a historical type of thing. But it's a pretty amazing type of thing, too, like a resurrection and so mm-hmm. forth. Um, what gives you confidence, um, like for Merlin and King Arthur, it's interesting to consider, are they historical or not? Mm-hmm. Or not and, but it doesn't seem to make that much difference. We can still enjoy them just as much either way. But with the Christian story... You know, it seems like there's more writing on it, like if it's a r- truly a historical uh, um, account. Um, so what, for you, is there anything in particular that gives you confidence in the Christian story? A number of things. Um, one of them was that I did not, because I didn't grow up in a Christian home, I didn't grow up with any, I had no knowledge of, of the Bible, of Scripture at all, and and so when I when I went to college, I wanted to learn as much as I could. So I ended up getting a Bible degree. I got like a minor in computer science, and I was working doing computers during the time. Mm. But I, I um, and as part of that, I took three years of Greek, and so I was able to get into the ancient languages. And I and not only that, but studying in particular all the different variations because we not only have these manuscripts but we have the manuscripts have very minor differences between them and so I so I was able to study what what's called textual criticism and when you when you look at textual criticism yes there are differences in the different manuscripts but but almost all of them have very clear explanations for instance if a scribe was was copying scripture and the scribe didn't understand um, didn't know Greek he might make certain types of mistakes because he's just copying letter by letter. He doesn't really know what he's writing. Mm-hmm. If there's someone who does know Greek, he might make different different type of mistakes. Um, sometimes, sometimes a scribe would write a note in the margin, and then a later scribe would think that that was supposed to be there, and they would put it into the text. So you know, there, you know, there's a study of all the different manuscripts and how they've how they you know what happened. But we have so much so much scriptural evidence. Um, we have so much scriptural evidence for the New Testament, far more than we have for anything else, any other ancient ancient books, which which people just trust, you know, scholars trust without question. But but it's you know it's on a factor of you know a thousand or more times. I'll just pause here while this. I don't know if I've ever seen a tow truck make that much noise. <laughs> so, so, so I really gained a confidence that, that not only are our scriptures translated very well, 
but that the differences in, you know, in these different manuscripts are so minor and we have such a clear understanding that, you know, that we're able to reconstruct very closely what the original text was. Mm-hmm. So I, very, I gained confidence in Scripture that it was transmitted um, yeah. faithfully to us. And then also just the testimony of the apostles is amazing. The fact that they were willing to die that they were willing to go to their death claiming that Christ was risen from the dead says almost more than anything that, you know, what would people die for? You know, if this was a lie, they would have been the first to admit it under, under threat of death. And they didn't. And so as you, you know, as, as you study their lives and um, it's, it's, it's just beyond amazing. And, and when you read Christ's words, it's, you know, from, from someone who didn't grow up in the church, to read Christ's words and not, not read them from familiarity of, is something I always heard growing up. But like for the first time, it was, you know, it, Christ's words are amazing. And what he says, it's breathtaking what he says and what he claims about himself. His claims are, are shocking. And, and yet he lived in such a way as to prove those. And, his, you know, and the evidence you know, for his resurrection are, are also just, just amazing. Because I grew up in a non-Christian home, I had to learn apologetics very early. I had to study, why, why do I believe this? I, you know, what is the the evidence for the resurrection? Um, and when you know, when you study those things, it's very convincing. And 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 throughout history, many atheists and agnostics have have taken it upon themselves to study those, you know, you know those things too, thinking they, that they could disprove it or at least at least you know, you know, mark check it off their list, and they end up in, instead becoming Christians, mm-hmm. you know, such as Lee Strobel and many others. Mm-hmm. Like him, so have you um g- gotten into fairy tales before um, I certainly read you know a lot growing up and i I read lots of Greek myths, I read different things um well, you mentioned George MacDonald and mm-hmm. he he wrote at least a few fairy tales, mm-hmm. you know, so it's just yes, um they're kind of like a strange genre to me they um when I read them, I just think. Who would write this? Like it just—it's just kind of wild, you know. <laughs> and it's not uh, always pleasant, um, pretty. It sometimes it's ugly and strange, you know. But it's just um, anyway. I was just yeah, kind of curious. Well, I mean, a lot of the fairy tales came out of came out of the ancient Celtic, um, you know, stories. Hmm. You know, from Ireland and and um, Cornwall. I mean, the Anglo-Saxons had their own versions too, going through Germany. Mm-hmm. You know, there was all all these ancient tales, but but the very concept of fairy is that these were you know you know when you go back far enough, it's the little people that live in the mounds. You know, hmm. um, okay. And and the land of fairy, you know, has its own rules, and there's you know these, you know, when you go there, you know, like this very story that you shared about the man who can't look back, you know, you can't do something or you're in trouble, you know, and that that's just kind of accepted, um, in those stories. And, you know, I just think they're fascinating. 
Um, I, I, you know, I, I've read as many as I can, especially of the, of the Celtic tales, um, to inform my own writing. And one of the things I do in Merlin's Blade is I have Merlin have visions. And in the visions he has, every vision he has, I bring in a different Celtic deity. And, and, and I'm doing so in such a way as to not only inform the reader of, of kind of the Celtic background of the story, but I'm also giving, um, say, a vision of something that is telling the reader what's going on spiritually, you know. Okay. In, in, in the story, so I try to weave in these these you know ancient legends and fairy tales and different things um, into the stories in that way. Something kind of interesting about fairy tales is that when um, it seems like the character is just a normal person who discovers this wild world that's not normal, whereas sometimes in our, our modern stories it's more of the person becomes something great like you know a superhero but um rather than a normal person discovering this world that they didn't know existed and then it's like it all opens up to them and it, you know that's anyway that's um and that's kinda, that that's similar in some ways to my novels that i'm that i'm yeah. making merlin just a normal right. person you know with the weaknesses of of anyone yeah and and yet he you know he's and one interesting thing about about my stories is is that I I always place them in a real place and I research those places very carefully and in some ways the stories write themselves you hmm. know for instance when I was when I was researching where to put this story I found there's this lake that is associated with with King Arthur you know with the King Arthur legends called Dosemary Pool in Cornwall and when I start looking at the lake okay so there's this lake well it turns out that scholars think that this lake was it's very unusual there's not very many lakes in the area except for this one swamp kind of to kind of to the west of it um which they've now pounded up and turned into a water reservoir but this this particular lake dosemary pool scholars think that a meteorite crashed into it and carved out this lake so i have this lake carved out by a meteorite okay well that's interesting and and when you look around the area, area there's this mountain nearby, and when you look at uh, in the ancient um, ordnance maps of Britain, you see all these hut circles. So there was this village on the side of this mountain right there, and then you go over here on the map, and oh, there, you know, there's an ancient circle of stones, a druid, you know, circle of, of druid stones over here, and and then this is in Bodmin Moor, England, and Bodmin um, comes from an ancient word called Bosvena, and Bosvena means dwelling place of monks. So you have ancient monks, Christians here, you have druids, you have the stone, you have this lake carved out by, by a meteor, you have, you have this little village nearby, and there was my setting, you know, you know, there's the, you know, and, it, and, and I've written into the era when Christianity has taken over Britain and the druids have been pushed out, and so the druids find this meteorite in the bottom of this lake, and they, you know, they bring it to the surface, and it you know, it glows blue, and anyone who sees it becomes becomes enchanted by it. So the druids are using this stone to try to regain their power, try to take back Britain for you know um, to bring it back to the old ways. And so there's this clash, this cultural clash in my novels that's very very reminiscent of the cultural clashes happening 
happening, you know, in our culture today. And I'm, you know, again, I'm, I began, I wrote this in 2006, so, so there's nothing, none of this recent, you know, things going on. But mm-hmm. regardless of that, you know, you know, there's just this cultural clash happening that everything happening now, I guess, is just evidence of in some ways. Um, and so, you know, it was a time period that was very much in, in flux. And, um, and so it was just very, you know, and, the, and then Merlin being half blind means he's the only one in the village who can't see this stone. So because he can't see it, that means he's immune to it. So he becomes the only one who, who's immune to the enchantment of the stone who can try to help the rest of the village, yet he can't see. So, you know, so he has difficulties hmm. there as well. So The names, I can see how, you know, you being real familiar with the historical area um, could be into, get into the names and everything. They make it a little bit difficult because, like, when I'm reading, even if I'm reading to myself, it... I want to be able to pronounce the names properly, but the place names and some of the people names are just a little bit difficult at first glance just to know exactly yeah, how should I say this. It, <laughs> it's very difficult, in fact. And, and that was one of Lawhead's advice to me, actually. Um, I was getting conflicting advice at the time when I was writing. Um, my, you know, Anyone reading the novels would say the same thing as you, that the names were very difficult. And yet Lawhead read my writing and said, you know, you need to make sure every name is historical, Mm. you know, that this is legitimate. Mm -hmm. And because, you know, I I made up a few names and he didn't think that was that was a good thing. And so I went back to the drawing board. Okay, I need to I need to make sure these are historical. But I was also getting this. Okay, you need to these names are hard. So what I attempted to do was to take the historical name, but simplify them a little bit. For instance, Garth is is one of Merlin's friends in the first novel. Well, his real name is Garth Wissick, and he's a historical character who actually, um, if you study study his life, he was the first missionary to um, the people of Glasgow, Scotland. Um, his hmm. name is Saint Mungo, and you see his 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 own journey in in life to become that 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 first missionary um, to the Scottish people. Hmm. Um, throughout the story, but his name was Garth Wissick, and and I just I, I can't make everyone even attempt to say that because there's yeah. there's Y's in there and it, it's just complicated. So I, so I I call him Garth most of the time, but then right. I then I attempt to on occasion throw in his real name so that people can know that okay this is historical this is even though it's right. hard to say but you can just call him Garth <laughs> things right. like that. So I attempted that and I did the best I could to try to find that balance between. Easy yeah. and, 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 and accurate and historical. So. Well, if they're really historical names, I guess just a Google search would bring up the pronunciation pretty easily then. Well, yes and no. It's, okay. it's difficult to pronounce. And I have a pronunciation guide in the back, but I have, like oh, a, little, okay. I have a footnote in, you know, in the glossary um, that just says, you know, here's the pronunciation guide for how to pronounce these things. But, you know, find a pronunciation that works for you, and it's more important that you enjoy the story. Right. And, that, and that's okay. Yeah. So, um, well, as I was just thinking about um, us talking, um, you know, I, was, I thought maybe I'd ask: um, You think there's any significance of how God communicates to us through story? Like, I guess there. Um, in fact, in Hebrews it says, you know, in these latter days, God 
has spoken to us by a son, you know, and it's, it's almost, um, and you're familiar with Greek, you know, the definite article is not there. So it's just son, almost like in essence, um, you know, speaking of Jesus, but, um, it's almost like this is a, a way of God communicating to us. And of course, that's in the context of a story. And, um, it's not like a book of, um, facts. I mean, not to say it's not factual, but yeah. it's not like just a list of, yeah. you and know, it's like John tr- 1, 1, you know, you know, the word became flesh and dwelt yeah. among us. Yeah. So, um, is that interesting to you that that's how God has chosen to reveal himself to us and, um, you know, through, you know, a story? I think so. And I, I think it, it, not only can everyone, can we all relate to it, but, you know, it, it in some ways, it, it, it's actually probably harder in our time, maybe, um, because, you know, we've gotten so visual in our, in our culture that in some ways we've lost the oral storytelling and we've lost reading. Reading is, itself is becoming a lost art. I think that, you know, the number of people that, act, that actually read books and read novels is very small nowadays, yeah. and especially among men, mm-hmm. um, even more so, um, because, you know, everyone's playing video games and everyone's on social media and everyone's watching, you know, Netflix and, you know, YouTube and, you know, who knows what else. And so, and even though there's stories and all these things, um, the oral aspects, you know, are, are, are lacking and but the ancient peoples weren't that way. There was you know storytelling and 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 the oral aspects of storytelling was was vitally important to them. And you know one of the one of the interesting facts that my daughter you know helped unearth for me was the importance of bards in in ancient Celtic culture. A bard was um, someone of such high esteem that if anyone killed a bard, they were you know that was like. Mm one of the worst things you could ever do mm-hmm. and you know um you know when you know and you see that when you look in the ancient laws of ireland um the shankus moor was you know which which saint patrick codified and 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 you know brought into you know and, and also brought christianity and you know into the ancient laws of ireland and those laws were in effect up until like the 1700s and 1800s in in many ways these ancient irish laws and in those laws you see you know the penalty for for harming a bard (laughs) were there Mm -hmm. and and so storytelling was a very high regard in ancient peoples Um, and and the fact that the fact that god chose to, to reveal himself through story makes so much sense and and as we as we comprehend that i think it it helps us also make sense of our own lives, which are a story, hmm. you know? Yeah, it kind of, it does make sense in that um, stories are really captivating. I remember when I was just real little and the librarian was reading a book and just the way she was reading it, you know, it was like, man, it just had us, had me just on the edge of my seat. So there's nothing like a story, you know, for even just a small child, just to captivate them. It It kind of makes me wonder... You know, why are we so captivated by stories? Like, you know, why is it like really nothing else just to, you know, lock us in and, and take take all of our focus and everything, you know? 
Um, do you have any thoughts about that? Yeah, the you know it's kind of like when I was young. I mean, you know, TV was was still you know was beginning to take over, let's say, but um, but there was still you know sitting around a campfire and and telling ghost stories, for instance. You know, talk about captivating. You know, you're mm-hmm. sitting there, you're at summer camp, and some guy's telling you stories, you know, scary stories about, you know, <laughs> things and, and you're looking around at the woods around you, you know, and, mm-hmm. um, and, you know, it, it not only can, stories can not only captivate us, but they can light our imagination. And I think, you know, I, I've, I've read so many, you know, stories from these ancient peoples that that, 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 you know, I've attempted to inform my own novels with that. And, and, and one of the things that, that I attempted to do in my novels was to write them in a way to keep the reader turning pages as much as they could. And so I, you know, I tend to think of myself as, you know, kind of a, you know, the historicity, say, of Rosemary Sutcliffe, you know, her novels are very historical, but trying to write more of an exciting, you know, style, more like a Frank Peretti or, you know, um, um, something like that. So trying to bring those those two together is difficult to do. And one of the things people, some people really like and some people don't like at all is that I include um, poetry throughout my novels. I have stories and songs and prayers and and one thing I, I always try to include in every novel is I take an ancient Celtic legend and I put it to verse. I, I completely rewrite it and put it to verse and include it as a, as a story told by a bard. Um, and, you know, that was because, of, because I did so much of that, I wasn't sure if I'd ever be able to be published by a traditional publisher because most of them don't have, you know, they don't have patience. Most readers don't have patience nowadays for things like that. And, and I'm sure some readers skip those, those, but it would be my hope that, like, like Tolkien did that, mm-hmm. yeah. it would be my hope that, that for those that are looking for something deeper, that they would take the time to read those. And so when you're uh, writing poetry, is there a certain format you're trying to put it in, like a certain foot or a rhyming scheme, or are you just trying to make it uh, flow in a way that just seems nice to you? I'm... Yeah, I'm I'm trying to make the stories as if someone is speaking them. Okay. So, and I and I do you know, I do make them rhyme because I think that 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 helps. Um most of the ancient languages rhymed a lot easier than English does. English is actually very difficult to rhyme when you know, when you get into Latin or any any languages that have case endings or things like that, it's a lot easier to make things rhyme. Hmm. So, ancient poetry tended to rhyme more um than modern storytelling. Um, but I, I tried to make it, um, sound like something that when read out loud and and I try to read my everything out loud that I can, Mm -hmm. um, every night, every night I I would sit around, we'd sit around the dinner table and I'd read what I wrote that day to my kids and my wife and, Hmm. and they would give me input and things. And that would help me catch so many things because, you know, you can write a sentence on the paper but then you try to read it, and it comes like a tongue twister. Like, wait, <laughs> this is all hmm. wrong. And if you can't read it easily, and if it doesn't come out smoothly, then there's something wrong with the writing. Mm-hmm. Um, so, I, so I try to test my writing that way as much as I can. Yeah. Um, 
Well, what about the nuts and bolts of being a writer? Um, the um, the guy who wrote Scary Close, do you know who I'm talking about? No. He wrote um, Blue Like Jazz. Okay, yeah. Um, Don? Don Miller. Don Miller, yeah. yeah. So he talks about you know just getting up before he does anything else. I think he just spends three hours and he just writes. So it's a real disciplined, disciplined approach. It's not like waiting to inspiration hits him and mm-hmm. stuff like that. What about you, um, especially when you have a, another job that you're What's your, uh, do you have a routine or is it more if you just kind of fit it in when you can or how, did, how is it for you? I've had more of a routine in the past. Okay. Um, my, you know, my, my ideal routine is I write 400 words a day. Okay. So if, if you can write 400 words a day, you can write a novel in a year. Hmm. Okay. Um, approximately. And so that's a little over a page. Something like that, and so you know what I what I try to do is to get up get up a little early, spend at least an hour writing in the morning, um, and that was more my routine up to a certain point, and then within within my you know within my family, um, we we've had a number of tough years, and um, that that kind of threw me off, and so um, I'm. I'm getting back into a routine, but but that has slowed down this last novel. So the first three novels, you know, you know, I, I think I wrote my first one in 2008. It wasn't published till 2014, uh, but my first three novels came out within a year and within like, um, within a year, all three of my first novels came out, and then it's been this long dry spell while I've been finishing up slowly my fourth novel. So. It helped that I already had the first two written, I guess, when, I, when the first ones were published. Mm-hmm. Um, but I've been kind of thrown off my routine and um, slowly getting back into it. So okay, I, I have very patient fans out there. So, Well, besides just writing, are there any um, life routines or disciplines or anything that you practice that, that's helpful for you in just um, you know, uh, being efficient in life or just being sane or just or whatever? Spending time in, you know, starting out the day in God's Word has, you know, has been very important. Um, and, and then ending the day that way as well. Um, community, I think, has become more and more important to me over the years. You know, not growing up in the church, didn't really have an understanding of that. Um, you know, becoming Christian through, you know, through a parachurch ministry, not within the church also, you know, didn't really help me in that area. But, um, and then we attended a church that was further away from us, you know, almost an hour away um, for for over almost a decade. And that made it difficult to be involved. And so just just recently, we've joined a a church closer to home. And I think community has has become more important to us um, over time. Um, and we've seen the importance of that in our children's lives as well. So, concerning church, is there anything about church that you would um, change or add or do differently? As far as just the way you practice Christianity with other people when you guys come together, I don't know what kind of church you, you're a part yeah. of, but is what what's important to you as far as how that goes and so well, forth. I have a wide um, variety of churches that I've attended over the years. We've we've been part of Baptist churches. We we were we home churched for 
a long time. Um, we're currently part of the of a Presbyterian church, um, and I just think spending time um, getting to know one another so that you know I I tend to be as a writer as an author I tend to you know you know be the guy who goes and sits in the corner and, and writes on and works on my novel um, you know so I can I can tend to be a guy who sits in my head too much um, thankfully my wife really really you know is more social and and into community and things and that helps me um, but I've you know just recently joined a Bible study with with men, um, and I just think it's very important in life to you know you know to to prioritize that to spend spend time together enough that we know each other because especially you know in the last year it's been hard with you know mm-hmm. with with churches having to meet on Zoom and um, or limited people there. I think a lot of people are feeling alone, um, and I think it's a lot of churches are hurting right now. And it's because of lack of community, because we're not seeing each other face-to-face. And hmm. Okay. All right. Well, thanks, Robert. It's been really good to talk with you. And is there anything else you want to bring up before we just wrap up? No, no, that's all. Okay. Just thank you for this time. Well, as far as um, people being able to get a hold of you, I'll put um, something on the webpage on the show notes. But is there anything you want to say about if people want to... Uh, be in contact with what you're doing and so forth a website or a blog or um, I have a blog on epictales.org okay and I have another website dedicated to the books kingarthur.org.uk I, somehow I ended up with one of the, the three major King Arthur websites from Britain which makes people think I'm in Britain but I'm not so. <laughs> okay <laughs> okay well thanks a lot sure thank you if you use a podcast app like iTunes please give a review of Conversations About Life.